Welcome to Awesome Movie Year, the podcast where we take a look back at an awesome year for movies, which is every year. My name is Josh Bell, film critic and writer, and I am joined by my co-host. I'm Jason Harris, filmmaker, comedian, and great news, Josh. We now have the number three film podcast on the entire planet, Transsexual. Oh, man, we couldn't even get higher than number three? <laughs> Does, well, there's, uh, you know, gives us a goal to shoot for. So. You know? Does Frank and Furter have a podcast? <laughs> uh, we'll have to do the time warp again to find we out. We will indeed. So in this season of Awesome Movie Year, we've been talking about the films of 1975. And we are doing the time warp again because we're here at our cult classic episode. And really, this is the cult classic of all cult classics. It is the Rocky Horror Picture Show. And... This is the movie I think that comes to mind more than any other, even now, when people mention the idea of a cult classic. Uh, I, I would have to agree. This is the all-timer of cult classics. I mean, obviously, there will be comparisons drawn to the room throughout, but uh, this is the longest-running theatrical film of all time. Still going, baby. It is. Dave and I just saw it this weekend at Tropicana Cinemas in preparation for this with live shadow cast and... Uh, yelling lots of lots of yelling yelling is a key component <laughs> suck fuck asshole slut <laughs> fuck you suck fuck uh-huh yelling jason earning us the uh, explicit neck fuck tag on this <laughs> yeah, episode we we're definitely getting that one this time <laughs> you just have to yell stuff like suck fucking hey hey why don't you what do you think of that and then the guy says like oh i fucked my own ear and then they're like ha 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 because he fucked his own ear jason seemingly not enamored of the uh, cleverness of the audience participation aspect to the Rocky Horror Picture Show. Yeah, yeah, cleverness I might not. Uh, I, I enjoyed the Shadowcats performance and some of the uh, the, the callbacks uh, as they are known. But uh, yeah, there's a lot of just like, hey, how do I make a penis or vagina joke here? Yeah, well, I feel like that's sort of in spirit with the film. Um, I think the film has a bit more cleverness than that. But it's great that you guys went and saw that here locally and had that Suck, had that experience. We're going to have an audience participation aspect to this podcast. If you're listening, shout some things at us while you're listening. Throw some rice at your uh, podcast device of choice. Put, put your hat on, your party hat, and make a few curses back-to-back peanut butter ass fuck. Okay. <laughs> So uh, later in this episode, Jason uh, got a chance to talk to a couple of the Shadowcast performers from that. Uh, yeah, show. we have Steven Destiny from Frankie's Favorite Obsession. And I also spoke to my castmate from BattleBots Destructathon, Steve Judkins, who toured with uh, the live show, the Rocky Horror Show in Australia for two and a half years. So we have some excellent cross the entire spectrum of performers of uh, the Rocky Horror World. Yeah, and this is the perfect, if there's any movie where we're going to talk about, talk to people who are super fans and who participate in that, this is the one. And uh, I hope when you talk to them, Jason, that you are uh, <laughs> slightly, you're not yelling profanities at them randomly, <laughs> insulting their performances. <laughs> I didn't insult those neck fucks performances, Josh. Why would I do good, that? Good deal. No, no. We had fun. Dave and I had fun the other night. They're lovely people. Yeah, that is that is wonderful. And yeah, I did not go the other night, but I have seen Frankie's Favorite Obsession perform here in Las Vegas. And this is how long not only 
that Rocky Horror has been a phenomenon, but that that troupe has existed in Vegas. I saw them perform 20 years ago that they did a live shadow cast performance that I went to that I think had a much smaller turnout than the one that you guys went to. Yeah, we were we had a full house. It was uh, Steve, the founder of the company, his retirement show, and he has been doing it for 22 years. But enough about that guy. Let's just talk about the movie now. All right, fair enough. We will we will do that. Uh, so this is an awesome Steve year. No, that would be a weird podcast. Although I think you could probably get some good mileage out of that. There are a lot of Steves around. Yeah, Steve, if you're listening and want to uh, sponsor awesome Steve year, give me give me a call. Two of our guests are called Steve, by the way. Right, we're already yeah. got a head start on awesome Steve year right there. <laughs> <laughs> These two Steves should definitely sponsor awesome Steve year. So this movie is interesting to me. We think of a cult classic, and usually these are movies that didn't really succeed initially and found an audience over time. But this movie, the 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 gap between when it kind of initially failed at the box office and when it found this bigger audience is like a year. It was a very, very short time. It was released in 1975 in really just a very small number of theaters. And by 1976, April 1976, these midnight screenings started in New York City and it just took off from there. So over time, it has grossed up to $226 million. And that's a figure I think that does not necessarily, that may be several years out of date. So probably more than that by now on its uh, initial budget of $1.4 million. As Jason said, it is the longest running theatrical release in film history. And uh, based initially on the Rocky Horror Show, which was created by Richard O'Brien, who wrote the music and lyrics and book here and also plays Riff Raff. So, yeah, I mean, it's 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 a flop for a very, very brief moment. And then it's a huge phenomenon almost immediately afterwards. Josh, Louise Ferese Jr., Teresa Krakowskis and Amy Lazarus are credited uh, with starting the idea of throwing one-liners, the callbacks at the screen where they when they went and saw it at the Waverly in New York City. And then Sal Pirro and Dory Hartley started the first shadow cast in New York. Pirro, of course, the president of the Rocky Horror Fan Club, went on to write two books, Creatures of the Night and Creatures of the Night 2. Yeah. And so, I mean, that's and that, that stuff that you're describing started like really right away with those midnight screenings. And, and what's interesting is, you know, what was happening in New York and L.A. and Pittsburgh and San Francisco. It all seemed to like bubble up at the same time. Right. It did. And and what's fascinating, I think, you know, I was looking for reviews and I think in a way like The Room, the initial release of this movie was very small. And so there's there's not a lot from the movie being released before it was a phenomenon and it became a phenomenon so quickly that it didn't even get released in most cities until it was already this cult thing where people knew it was a midnight show and you had the shadow cast and the lines and everything. So kind of fascinating to look that up. So the one review I have from the, this is actually from the initial release. This is Donald McLean in the Bay Area Reporter. He said, it was inevitable. We've seen Frankenstein by everyone from Boris Karloff to Christopher Lee, Mel Brooks to Andy Warhol, and now comes the penultimate, a rock musical transvestite spoof entitled The Rocky Horror Picture Show, and it is the gay zenith of camp. Tim Curry recreates dazzlingly the role of Frank N. Furter that rocketed him to stardom via the stage production. 
The intrusion of a narrator is annoying and unnecessary, but for the most part, it moves spiritedly along and the whole thing is a giant giggle. It's all so blatantly outrageous, it can only be taken in the spirit of campy fun. This is one time a stage production has been enhanced by the film version. Hmm. Have you ever seen the stage production, John? I have not. I, I mean, I know your, your uh, co-worker that you're talking to has been in it, but have you ever seen it? No, I'd like to see it. Uh, the point about the narrator there, did it bring you back to our uh, work on Ed Wood? It reminded me of that. It was just like total like, hey, we got to fill some time. We don't have a budget here. Yeah, I mean, I think it's meant to remind you of Ed Wood movies that I don't know that it's for that purpose that you're describing. I think it's for the purpose of spoofing or paying tribute. Richard O'Brien was obsessed with B movies and, you know, low budget uh, sci-fi exactly. movies, I'd say. Exactly. Movies, so yeah. whether it was a tribute to Glenn or Glenda, the movie we talked about, or maybe more likely something like Plan 9 from Outer Space that had been shown in midnight showings or whatever, it's absolutely, I think, on purpose there and not just trying to fill time in this movie particularly. So by the time it uh, arrived in Chicago, for Roger Ebert to see it in 1976. Again, it was already a phenomenon. So this is just from 76, but he was seeing it in this, in this new context. And he said, the Rocky Horror Picture Show would be more fun, I suspect, if it weren't a picture show. It belongs on a stage with the performers and audience joining in a collective send-up. That's a rather- It was on a stage, Roger. <laughs> That's a rather unfair way to approach it as a movie. But then Rocky Horror remains very much a filmed play. The choreography, the compositions, and even the attitudes of the cast imply a stage ambiance. And it invites the kind of laughter and audience participation that makes sense only if the performers are there on the stage, creating mutual karma. Still, Rocky Horror has its moments, and it's doing good business. It's one of those movies you have to use a lot of hyphens to explain a horror, rock, transvestite, camp, omnisexual musical parody. Yeah, I mean, I think the the movie is more fun because of the experience with the shadow cast. Like, as a movie, it doesn't do much for me, but the communal experience of yelling words like suck and fuck together, Josh, that is something I can get behind. I also like the, you know, just um, the the all the act-outs of it, you know, as we spoke to, uh, Steve from Frankie's Favorite Obsession, who played Eddie in this, you know, he's riding his his quote-unquote motorcycle down the aisles, which is just a bike prop. And, you know, there's a lot of fun to be had. Right. I think I think that's true. And that is the way that, I don't know if this is the way that most people see it, because, of course, you can watch this at home. It's streaming, and probably a lot of people are just curious and will watch it. But I think that's the preferred way to see it. I think it has to be. I mean, it used to be on, like, VH1 all the time also. But I think if I just watched it at home, I'd be like, it's got some good music and that's about and a, and a, a sizzling hot Susan Sarandon and Tim Curry. Yeah, Susan Sarandon does look uh, quite fetching in this film as as Janet, one half of the hapless Midwestern couple, along with Brad, played by Barry Bostwick, who stumble into the strange uh, castle. I guess it's is it a castle or a state? It's a castle. Right, the castle of Frank Enferter. So uh, finally, Stephen Schiff in the Boston Phoenix. This was in 1978, and he's reviewing the experience as much as the movie. But again, he you know opens this review basically talking about how this is a phenomenon and it has finally made its way to a theater there in Boston. He said, I had come expecting almost anything. 
daring bad taste, convention flouting artistry, continental baths camp, sleaze and decadence, S&M. But what I saw was a teenage slumber party straining to be scandalous. The costumes are sometimes intriguing, and the sets spoof the gleaming laboratory decor of 30s horror films by RKO and Universal, and the recent creep shows made in England by Hammer. Backed by soupy orchestration and sung in a jet whale hard rock style, the songs seem to me intentionally inane. It all seems quite tame, less outrageous than an Alice Cooper concert, and less inventive than a Saturday Night Live segment. Yeah, nothing's as hard rock like let's do the time work again. Right. I mean, it is it is a more rock oriented musical than a typical. Yeah, it's a rock opera. Yeah, than a typical yeah. Broadway yeah. production, but I don't think it's hard rock. Yeah, I mean, glam. You know, it's in the middle. It's glam rock. Come on, baby. Yeah, but I think compared to you know when he's comparing it to like Alice Cooper or whatever the 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 kind of rock that existed in 1978, um, it probably fits not far from that. I think. Alice Cooper might be disgusted. The Rocky Horror Picture Show today noted uh, Republican Alice Cooper. <laughs> he is, although I feel like he he's Republican on like taxes and stuff, and he's still happy to do his crazy stage show. I'm sure he approves of Rocky Horror. Mm, you're sure of it, are I'm you? Pretty sure. We could have gotten him as a guest and you know gotten his opinion if you wanted it. Well, when we do Awesome Alice here, maybe we can do that. Yeah, we will. Jason, really. Uh... <laughs> kind of cranky in this episode, I think. <laughs> I'm not cranky, Josh. I'm just uh, enjoying the experience. As you know, I had never seen this film before, so I demanded that we go and do it the right way. Yeah, and I think that was smart. Like I said, that is the way to see it if you've never seen it before. But you feel like if you had instead watched it at home, you would not have enjoyed yourself. I, I like the music. I mean, we know it's shot pretty well and, you know, obviously some good actors, but it's it's a nonsensical, crazy story that doesn't really hold together. It's the experience that makes it what it is, much like The Room. Yeah, I mean, I feel like The Room is, this is a much better movie, like, as a movie than The Room. And I've seen the experience a couple times. Like I said, it was a long time ago that I saw the Frankie's Favorite Obsession performance here in Vegas, which was not the best venue they were kind of in between movie theaters and it was in this weird random storefront and it was there was not much of an audience i think there were more performance than audience performers was that at the onyx or no no it wasn't even there it was literally just a space that they'd rented out it didn't have a name or anything it was like go to suite number something in this building and there it was they had some chairs set up and a projector projecting onto the wall and so the performers were even like blocking the movie half the time because the projector was just right in front of them so not the best experience. But before that, I had seen it in L.A. with a friend of mine when I was, I believe, when I was in college who had been uh, like for had a brief period of having like huge Rocky Horror fandom and was going every week. And I went to visit him and it was just like, well, hey, it's Saturday. I go to Rocky Horror. You're coming with me. And I did not want to go. <laughs> and uh, I remember I at least got him to agree not to point out that I was a, quote, virgin, where they often have the people who haven't seen it before. They, they paint a little V on your forehead and make you participate in some crazy challenges. And I didn't want to do that. So uh, I got out of it. But uh, I don't know if you guys had that experience. I did have a V painted on me um, and they made me have sex with someone in front of everybody just to sex shave me. No, I didn't do any of the competitions. I think there was a fake orgasm competition when we went, Dave. Yeah. That sounds yep. like something they would have. So, I mean, for me, I, in a general sense, 
hate audience participation. I don't like anything that involves audience participation. So or fun in general. <laughs> really? So, I mean, I, I, you know, it was a long time ago. And like I said, at least the one, the experience I had here was not the ideal scenario, but the the one prior to that was, you know, it was the, the premier venue for it in LA and it was certainly full. And I don't think I enjoyed the participation aspect of it in any way. So I watched mm. it at- That sounds on brand <laughs> for you. I, and not, not, the, not that that particular troupe did a bad job or anything. It's just not the kind of thing I enjoy. You know, I will avoid immersive theater at all costs. I would never go to something like that. So things like this are not fun for me. So I watched it at home this time, and I think I enjoyed it more that way than I had in the past. Takes all kinds, baby. It does. So Dave, obviously you went with Jason to this uh, recent show, but had you seen it before then? So yeah, my mom actually came with us too to the uh, she kept Saturday night. Ear yeah, she yelled a lot of stuff. Um, no, I... I hadn't seen this as an adult. And also while watching it, I was kind of wondering, have I ever actually seen it all the way through? My mom used to show me clips from it all the time. Like it would be on TV and she'd like run in and switch whatever I was watching over to a different channel and make me watch it. So uh, I had definitely been around Rocky Horror all my life, but I hadn't seen it as an adult. So this was kind of a first time watch. Uh, your mom was having a lot of fun and she was participating. She said she's been going basically since the birth of these midnight uh, showings. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. Had, had she been to the the one in Vegas? No, she hadn't, but she had definitely been, you know, in New York and, you know, all that stuff back in, you know, the seventies and into the eighties. Very cool. Yeah. So she wasn't uh, taking you as a small child along with her to one of these uh, live performances. She might just not remember. It seems like something she'd do. Yeah, <laughs> it does. It really does. So, uh, Jason, anything else on uh, the background of this film that you want to talk about? Josh, we, of course, mentioned the stage show. Richard O'Brien wrote it. Tim Curry was the star of that. Uh, that was in 73, and that became a big hit almost right away, too. So this has transcended types of media, Josh, and has proven to be a hit in many forms, including on an episode of Glee. Indeed. Yeah, and a bunch of... <laughs> That's the most important thing. Um, in addition to Tim Curry, there are a bunch of other, and Richard O'Brien, of course, uh, Patricia Quinn and Little Nell both also were in the stage production. Um, so definitely something where you watch this movie and you see some of these actors who are not well known. And in part, it's, you know, why did they get cast? It's because they had already been in the stage version and they, they carried over to this version. So, uh, We'll come back then in a moment and talk more of our general thoughts on the Rocky Horror Picture Show. Welcome back to Awesome Movie Year. In this episode of our season on the films of 1975, we are talking about the ultimate cult classic, the Rocky Horror Picture Show. And in a little bit, we'll have Jason's chats with some local Rocky Horror performers and uh, two guys named Steve, right? That's what it is. Yeah. But separately, there, there was one guy named Steve, uh, who's one of the performers. And then there's uh, another Steve who uh, was doing the live show. And then there's Destiny, who's one of the performers. She's with one of the Steves, but the other Steve's on his own. It'll all make sense later on. Much like the Rocky <laughs> Horror Picture Show. <laughs> you just got to let it wash over you and just kind of accept it. <laughs> that's right. See, that, that's where it fell off for me. I was enjoying it. And then it just gets so nuts. And just um, nonsensical. I was like, all right, if this was just a movie that I was watching on my own, I'd be like, whatever, dude. 
But because of the, you know, the shadow cast and the live performers and the enthusiasm, which is why this all started, because it was such a crazy uh, film that that warranted such uh, uh, illicit interactions. That's what makes it so much fun. Yeah, I mean, I, you know, despite my curmudgeonliness or whatever and my dislike for audience participation, I can see that that's what draws people to this and why you would want to go. But I did enjoy this as a movie. I feel like this movie, as opposed to something like The Room or a lot of other cult classics in this vein that are seen as maybe like so bad they're good or whatever. Like, I don't think this is a bad movie at all. I think this is a good movie. It's got good, catchy songs. It's got some really good performances, especially from Tim Curry. It does degenerate into total nonsense, but I feel like that's almost like appropriate for the kinds of movies it's parodying these sci-fi B-movies that often themselves don't make a whole lot of sense. And I think it captures a lot of that style while integrating it with that kind of glam rock style and this queer sensibility. And uh, I, I have a good time with it on my own without other people around yelling at me. Yeah, while you're sitting wrapped in your bubble wrap yes. with your mittens on. Mm. Uh, no, I agree with all the things that you said. Tim Curry, you know, really crackles on this thing, right? You know, and uh, Susan Sarandon, you could see was going to be a big star. And, um, you know, uh, so the acting's good. The songs are great. Uh, you know, I love that type of music anyway. Uh, it's just and it's shot well. It just it just goes so far off over the edge. I was just kind of lost interest as it went on. Yeah. I mean, was there a specific point where you were kind of with it until a certain moment and then it just lost you? Uh, really, I think it was towards the end with, uh, you know, turning people into statues and sending them back to their home planets. And it just seemed like, where is this all coming from? We, we were just here at a manor at a, at a castle doing castle things. And, and now we're turning people into statues. Hey, knock that off. Would you, <laughs> you did not approve of Frankenfurter's <laughs> behavior. No, but I did like, you know, a lot of uh, how forward thinking it was, you know, the fact that. Uh, uh, no, next. <laughs> Cut that, Dave. Did, you, did, you, that, did Dave. you have a point to make there or not? I did, but it wasn't forward thinking, really, because I was going to talk about the elements of bisexuality. Right. But then Frankenfurter like sneaks in. So like it's like I'm uh, forward thinking in uh, who I could you know, tricked into having sexual relations with me. And that's I knew that's like, where you were going with this. Yeah. So, <laughs> well, so. I mean, I don't think you're, uh, I don't think you're entirely wrong about that though, because on the one hand, yes, he does trick both Brad and Janet. You know, he comes into their bedrooms and he appears somehow. We don't see it because presumably they didn't have the budget to show it. It's all in shadow, but he appears as, as Brad to Janet and as Janet to Brad and then reveals himself. And so, when he does that, both of them are into having sex with him. So in that sense, it does kind of embrace in a positive way the bisexuality. I mean, it's the classic, you know, Revenge of the Nerds ending, right? Where we've seen it here. Uh, obviously, this was done before that. So sure, Josh, we'll go with that. Back in the day where you ever sneak into someone's room and sex them, Josh, without them knowing it was you? No, but what I'm saying is that they do know it's him. Well, at some point. Right. Yeah. But I think very early on, he comes in and he says like one thing and then immediately reveals himself. So I feel like, I mean, you can't tell because of the shadows, but I feel like he is he is being honest before they actually engage in the sexual intercourse. 
Uh, all right. I'm, I'm giving him credit for not being a rapist, but he is still like <laughs> a murderer and a cannibal. So it's all relative. <laughs> he's uh, He's got B-I-N-G on his Dahmer bingo card. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, he's almost there. So, I mean, but I think that's one of the things that struck me this time because he's such a fun figure to watch and Tim Curry is so great and people love Frankenfurter, right? They That's like the best role to play in the shadow cast probably. And yet he is he is a, a real villain. They have this like tragic ending for him, but like how tragic is it really? He like took Eddie, poor Eddie, Meatloaf's character. He took his half his brain out and then murdered him and then ate him and served him up to his guests. Yeah, he's a villain the same way Hannibal Lecter's a villain. It's the guy you're rooting for, the most charismatic one. Like, not a real villain at all. Are you saying that Hannibal Lecter is not really a villain? Oh, Hannibal Lecter wasn't a villain? Dude, he got all the sequels. What are you talking about? There wasn't Clarice Part 2. Oh, well, there was a Clarice TV show, but um, that's really not, <laughs> that's not the point. Um, yeah, I mean, but that, like... He's charismatic and fun to watch. And yes, he got all the sequels. That doesn't mean he's not a villain, though. He's not the villain. He helps track Buffalo Bill, who's the real villain in that film. They are both villains. I feel like we need a whole Silence of the Lambs <laughs> episode here at some point to, to parse your understanding of Hannibal Lecter. He's like the most beloved bad guy. Yeah, but know, he's so. still a bad guy. He's beloved like like the Joker or something is a villain and yet is very popular. Well, you're going to get in trouble. A lot of white people who would also <laughs> prefer to watch this movie alone. <laughs> All right. Well, I mean, so so you're saying that Frankenfurter, despite his murder and cannibalism, is not a villain. Not a villain. Not in this world, Josh. All right. The real villain are the squares. The squares. So Brad and Janet are the villains? Well, Brad probably. Nah, Brad banged a dude. He's not really a villain. So, <laughs> the the professor, Professor Scott in the wheelchair. Well, Josh, come on, stop picking on disabled people. I mean, he's a square though, right? He's trying to. Uh, he's studying the the transsexuals from Transylvania and trying to send them back to their home planet or whatever. He's not on board. Now that's villainous right there, Josh. That's why I'm asking. So he's the villain. Maybe they maybe maybe they should have eaten him. Okay. Well maybe they would have eventually. I I don't know. I feel like you're you're like I mean on the one hand you're right or at least you are with a lot of the fans who I think would not think of Frankenfurter as a villain. But I'm just saying that, and I probably thought that too, if you had asked me before watching this movie again, is he a villain? I would be like, no, of course not. He's so fun to watch. But watching the movie this time, I realized like, wait a minute, he's just going to go murder Eddie. He's just going in this other room to like full on murder that guy. And then they're eating him. Well, you know, if you're going to eat one, you, you go for meatloaf. <laughs> yeah, they're eating meatloaf. That's. That's good. what was your favorite song, Jason? Let's change the topic here. I mean, Time Warp's, Time Warp's a tough one to uh, beat, isn't it? Right. Yeah, of course. That's great. And you that's know, the most touch a touch a touch me. That's always a good one. A karaoke favorite. Yeah. Uh, did you like I know there's a lot of audience participation in the damn it, Janet. Uh, I love you. I don't know what the title of that song is, but uh, early on. In the yeah, movie. the music's great in the movie. Yeah. All right. So you weren't you didn't find it soupy or whatever, as in that one, uh, that one review. Soupy? Is that what they call yeah, it? The orchestrations were soupy, you know, kind of muddy or muddled or whatever, I guess. Uh, no, I mean, uh, perhaps there was some brothy elements of it, <laughs> but uh, but a full on soup. Come on. Yeah. All right. No, I like the music, too. I think it's and this is a musical. I feel like sometimes 
um, there's modern musicals, mu movie musicals, even like Disney ones where I watch it and I think, man, there's barely any music. There's like four songs in this 90 minute movie or whatever. And, and this movie is full of, there's, there's very short lulls in between songs and they're, they're all fun to watch. And I feel like that's one of the things, you know, if it aired on VH1 a lot, it's because it's almost like a feature length music video. And that's another reason why the descending into nonsense didn't really bother me so much. Yeah, I guess uh, just different ways of looking at it. At that point, it just went so far off the cliff for me that I was just like, come on, fellas. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I think, I don't know. I guess, again, it's sort of like emulating those other kinds of movies. And it did seem to me that there was sort of at odds with, you know, sometimes in the songs, Frankenfurter is singing like he's, you know, a human. A good guy. Right, like he's a good guy or he's this, you know, he's a he's a human person with human feelings and his he's struggling with, you know, que queer identity and, and gender identity and all this stuff. And then his actions are like alien villain from a B movie and they don't always connect is what I'm saying. It's a little soupy. Yeah. <laughs> is that how you felt about it? Josh, I came out of the movie and I saw my friend Tia there who I She's uh, another co-worker's uh, wife. And uh, and she's like, what do you think? And she knew it was my first time seeing it. And I was like, well, you know, as a movie, eh, you know, it just goes crazy. And she goes, this movie is my life. <laughs> right. Well, this is obviously a movie that has that kind of a fandom. It does. Uh, our friend Steve from Awesome Steve here, uh, who we'll get to his interview soon has said he between 1998 and like 2005 he had seen it over 500 times in the theater. Yeah, I mean, the people who love this movie really love it. And I think what's impressive is that there are still and I don't know if this was the case when you guys went to see it, but it seems like for a long time at least even all these years later, there are still young people who are joining these oh, shadows yeah. casts and whatever and you would think, you know, this is a movie that someone born, you know, in the early 2000s or something would have no interest in because it's so old, but it, it still speaks to, to newer generations. It's fine and it's communal, like Hannibal Lecter. Yeah. <laughs> are you are you going to join the shadow cast for a Hannibal? I Lecter think my movie? time for that. Yeah. For a Hannibal Lecter movie, but not for Rocky Horror Picture Show. No. <laughs> when they do Manhunter yes. with a shadow cast on there. That's but. perfect. I can see you in that in the Brian Cox Hannibal Lecter role <laughs> in Manhunter. I would love to check that out. So if you're listening, we're available. Yeah. <laughs> That's gonna it's gonna bring in a big audience. So Dave, did you like this as a movie? So I'm kind of on your side here, Josh. Like I actually did think that this was a fun movie. And uh I've like I said, I've never like sat down and watched it as an adult. And I'd be really curious to see how it plays that way because I actually like, like elements of the movie more than even just all the craziness of the live show around it. Um, although that was really fun too. Yeah. I mean the, the costumes, the set design, most of the performances all really, I agree. Yeah. I mean, it's shot. Well, it's uh, got some dynamic spacing for musical, right. You know, yeah, like absolutely. I agree with you on that stuff. It's yeah. but you still need like a script to make it like, coherent obviously i like stuff that goes off the deep end so yeah right a lot of the time i do too but this one i guess like josh you were saying you like with the room we can go oh it's so bad it's good which is how i think people started thinking of this thing but it's like it's actually not that bad and then it's like oh it's gonna be better the room no this oh, one okay. bro all right <laughs> I, I, hannibal yeah 
<laughs> no, I mean, and Dave, as a super fan of The Room, do you feel like, I mean, is that a movie that you enjoy just as a movie or is it also partly the experience of going to the, the live uh, production of it? Yeah, well, you know, obviously I gave The Room five stars when we did our podcast on it. Like, I love The Room. It's like one of my favorite movies, but this is definitely a better movie than The Room is. All right. I'm glad you feel that way. This is also the guy who gave Fast 10 four and a half stars. So <laughs> take that for what you will. I can't stand Fast 10, but it's still a better movie than The Room. I'm sorry. <laughs> <laughs> so, Jason, should we rate this out of uh, five uh, transsexuals from Transylvania? Sure, let's do it. It only gets two for me. That's three transsexuals. It's missing two transsexuals from Transylvania, the planet where the transsexuals transsex. All right, that's a low rating. I feel like, despite despite your enthusiasm. For yeah. A lot of well, people. I'm gonna have to fight a whole audience next time. You I are. Know, yeah. <laughs> you can throw things at you. Instead. But let me just say, it's two as a movie. But as an experience, three and a half. Okay, that's fair. I give it three and a half as a movie. I enjoyed it just watching it at home. I wasn't sure how I would feel after all this time and, you know, taken away from the whole experience of it, but I had fun with it. So three and a half transsexuals. Real fast, Josh. While you were watching it, were you like, oh, this is really three, but since there's no one around me and I don't have to interact with anyone, it gets bumped up. Well, that's really, I feel like, <laughs> every experience of any kind, you know, how I would rate them probably. So it all balances out really. And in the end, Dave, how would you rate this? I'm going with four guys. I had a really fun time watching this one. Yeah. Good. How, how many stars would your mom give it? Oh, 10. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) All right. So we'll come back, Jason. Tell us again. What are we, uh, what are we about to hear? We got interviews galore. Steve Judkins is coming up. He toured with the Australian company for the Rocky Horror Show on stage. Then we got Steve Van Meter and Destiny Kane from Frankie's Favorite Obsession, our local Las Vegas uh, shadow cast. And you know what, Josh, how they always put like the little league teams on the wall at the Applebee's. These guys deserve a wall picture at Applebee's. We got interviews with them coming right up here on Awesome Steve Year. I'm here with Steve Judkins. Do you like how I said your name like a morning DJ? Steve Judkins. Could you just put a bit more, bit more depth, please. <laughs> Steve Judkins. There we go. Steve is a co-star of mine. He actually is a co-host at Battlebots Destructive Bond here in Las Vegas. And Steve has been a stage actor for over 30 years, I'd say. Yep, just over. So obviously, Rocky Horror Picture Show started as a stage play, and you, your first big gig was with the Australian touring company of Rocky Horror Show. Yeah, it was the, just this. The, everything in Australia is just the Australian production because we're such a small country. We go to five cities; it's kind of just a tour or not a tour. But yeah, that was my first uh, professional gig. I think I was nineteen when I got that job. And was thrilled that when I got a call from the director personally to say that I'd got the show, which never happens. You guys know as entertainers that it's usually through an agent. And uh, the director called me, a guy called Nigel Triffitt, who was a, a legendary Australian director and designer, and said, I always give one person in every production a break. And you're the one who's getting his break. And it's the Rocky Horror Show and you're in. And it was all star-studded soap stars and all these celebrities from Australia. And 
six of us were on understudies for the main parts. And in those days, Jason, and even though the viewers can't see me nowadays, I was ro- understudy for Rocky, so I was the body part. <laughs> oh, you were you were the understudy for Rocky, and then did you have a different part while you were understudying as well? Yeah, so they're called phantoms, and they're basically when you watch the movie, they're all the people who are at the party but you kind of feature in every song in the show in the background or creeping around in the audience or doing something like that. And then eventually as the show, the season went on, I ended up doing it for two and a half years with a couple of breaks. I ended up understudying everything except for Brad. And that's probably the role yeah. now that I feel I was probably most right for. Love doing Frank and Ferdo. I was just in my element. Anyone who knows the show that well knows that that's the dream role for anyone. And if you can sing high, you, you know, you might want to do Riff Raff, but it's, it's all about Frank really, isn't it? So what was your first exposure to Rocky Horror? So to be honest, I hadn't seen the movie until I got about into my third round of auditions. And um, I was t- my, uh, my father is very involved with Australian sports. He's a legend in recruiting. So he's a talent scout for one of the big Aussie rules football teams. And until I got the show and until pretty much opening night, he thought it was about Rocky Balboa. <laughs> So you can imagine his surprise when him and the boys from the football club <laughs> turned up to see the show. Um, so, yeah, my first experience was actually getting around uh, three auditions in and then thinking I better find out what it – because, you know, you go for so many things. I better watch the movie. And I was like, oh, oh, and I'm singing there. Keep getting me to sing The Sword of Democles. That must be me. And, um, and, and to be honest, you know, I'd grown up in musical theatre. I've been doing professional kind of – did Oliver when I was 12 years old and grew up around – you know, fairly open-minded people being from a small, small town out of Melbourne in Australia where no one was into musicals. And so I found my niche as we all do as kids. And so when Rocky came up, there was no shock value to it at all. It was a little bit daunting knowing that I was going to be pretty much naked on stage, which was a little scary. But I'd done the play Equus by Peter Schaefer about the little boy who stabs the seven horses in the eye with the, when I was 15. Um, they didn't make me fully naked for that, which usually you would do in the play. I had like a loincloth on, but, you know, I, I had been fairly naked at that point. Um, and a funny little story in the auditions for the show, they need to at some point check the body type for that role. You know, you're not going to get through the whole audition and then, then, then they ask you to take your T-shirt off. So about five auditions in, we're actually in the theatre at the Comedy, Comedy Theatre in Melbourne, and there's about seven people on the panel. And this beautiful guy, Nigel Trifford, who cast me in the show, said, well, it's that time, my boy. I hope you've got your Speedo on because today's the day you get it all off. And I said, straight away, T-shirt off, no hesitation whatsoever, and just stand there flexing and sing the song. And then, and then I had about another probably four auditions before I was actually cast. And later in the year, I was talking to Nigel at a party one night. And he said, Do you know, after that fourth audition, you didn't have to take your clothes off for the rest of the auditions. You were the only guy that in the callbacks after that just immediately walked in and just took your clothes off. I was 19. I thought, oh, this is what they must want me to do every time. So I literally walked on stage with the Speedo on for the last four auditions unnecessarily. <laughs> he, he says he doesn't know, but he does the same thing at Battle Lots all the time. So, so Steve, did, have you seen the film with an audience, like midnight movie style? Oh, yeah, lots of times, yeah. And it, it's incredible the difference between the two um they really are a different beast the the live the live show is like a rock concert and it moves really fast and it um it's fast paced and the, and the music drives it along the film in its original showings um didn't have all the call and response stuff which people are used to because the fans had seen it live a lot around london it was i think it was upstairs at a small theater in london when it first got its break but it was so slow that they ended up shouting at the movie 
And it, it became a thing that the audience developed because they were trying to speed the film up. It was actually a really slow, dreamlike film, as you know, whereas the show is actually kind of, you know, more of a rock concert. So when I, I went and saw the movie version of it a few times in London, and then a buddy of mine was playing Rocky on the West End, and I went, and the show, the actors really are second to the show, to the audience and they can't get a line out nowadays without the audience screaming and when it's in a live production it really upset me to be honest because I'm there wanting my buddies to be doing showing off their skills and they get two lines in and then someone else would shout out and it was just a constant almost line for line back and forth for the whole show and there was one point in the show where Frankenfurter says something, um, on the day you went away, goodbye. And someone yells, yeah, go then. And I yell out, shut the fuck up. You're not playing the role. And I got and the whole audience back. And the guy playing Frankenfurter said, thank you, darling. And then continued on with the song. And this guy just would not shut up. Um, so, yeah, it's a, it's a different beast, definitely a different beast. Yeah, that's got to be hard to be on stage in the moment doing your part, but also reacting in that same moment to everything being thrown at you from an audience. I mean, it almost becomes for those actors at this stage, um, an improv show, it, it, you know, because you don't half the time, the set stuff is, you know, we all know the typical responses that people shout out, but they've developed into, you know, subsections and almost subcults of, of comments that they throw at the actors now. And, and like I said, it, it does get a little bit overwhelming. When I did the show in Australia, Australian audiences, believe it or not, are a little more reserved than the British audiences. I think they have a real ownership of the show because of the Richard O'Brien connection and that the show was developed in, in London. Um, so I think they feel as though they're supposed to be a part of the production. Whereas in Australia, they only really shouted out mainly when the narrator was talking. Um, you know, he starts. He says, "It was the the first line of it." You know, there's a, that banter that goes back and forth throughout his his opening, um, and that was kind of good because the guy was a stand up comic and just had the best comebacks, you know, that you could possibly think of, and he changed them all the time. But during the actual show itself, the Aussie audiences stayed pretty quiet, but yeah, the the British audience out of control, and they're all in costume. Uh, if you don't turn up in costume, you you don't belong there, you know. And I just turned up in my normal. People are like, "Oh, this guy doesn't belong here." It's, not dressed or you know in the drag outfit what do you like better the movie or the live show um to perform obviously i'd love to have been in the movie um but to as just as someone just watching it i i actually think the live show has something about it that has that real rock star quality i must admit and david and i before we went on air today were just talking a little about the film and it was kind of dreamlike like it 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 didn't really match what I, my version of, you know, what the show became once I was in it. Um, and then when I go back to watch the movie again, it sort of is fairly slow. I feel it's, it kind of doesn't drag as such, but it has lots of space. Um, again, which is why the audience has started filling the gaps in themselves. So they're very different. And, and to, to be honest, I don't know if I have a favorite. I, I think when I go to watch any theater as an actor now, I'm automatically almost watching the performance is too much instead of letting myself get really involved with um, the show. And I do that with pretty much everything. Unfortunately, I don't go and see a lot of musicals anymore because I kind of feel uncomfortable watching them, which is kind of strange when I've done it for 30 years, but you overanalyze. I mean, maybe it's the same for you. I don't know, but when you go to see a stand up comic, do you, can you openly just let yourself go and laugh or you're thinking, Oh, there's a good setup. There's a good joke that didn't land or that would have been better if he had a set it this way. 
Yeah, you're definitely always, you know, kind of working while you're not working, right? Mm. But, um, you know, the best is when you're when you go in and you're not sure how it's going to go and then you find yourself lost in it, right? But I don't really, I was just having this conversation yesterday. I don't know who's funny right now, so it's tough. Mm. So, but um, I know what you're saying, but there's got to be a reason why this thing has had such staying power for so long. I mean, in my opinion, it's a, it's a number of things. And I think what it comes down to really in a nutshell is it's just such a fun experience. I think people can laugh. They tap along with the songs, which are just, you know, basic four chord songs. It's not nothing too difficult. So most people can pick up the melody and sing along with it. Um, and I don't think it takes itself very seriously. Like... You know, it's, it's about transsexuals coming from another planet. And, you know, I mean, if if you take that stuff too seriously, you can't kind of let yourself go into it and have a bit of a laugh. Um, then I think, it, it, you know, you'd have to be pretty stiff to not <laughs> to not kind of let yourself go and have a, have a bit of fun with it. Um, and as you you know, as in the last ten years or fifteen years, I guess it's I don't know much about this topic, but it may have hit a whole new audience with the progression that people are making with acceptance and being different and all that sort of stuff. And maybe refreshing for, for teenagers and, you know, anyone under 25 or 30 to go, oh, wow, even in the seventies, there was someone talking about this. And, and that's why Richard O'Brien was, uh, wrote the thing. He, he was dealing with that from a, from a young age as a teenager, dealing with his transgender. And I think, and he, and his love of sci-fi movies combined is really what drew him to, to write the material. And, um, and I thought that was really interesting. It wasn't just a, an idea that came out of nowhere. He literally was so passionate about B-grade science movies and also going through this, whether it be a struggle or realisation about himself, and it kind of created the perfect storm, I guess. Yeah, it's, uh, it was definitely ahead of its time in, in some regards. Uh, I think that's all we need from you, Steve. Um, I appreciate that you came on to this interview in full Frankenfooter, you know, <laughs> lingerie. That was good of you. You didn't have to wear the heels, but you did it. They, well, you know, I, I wasn't doing that for the interview. I'm just about to head to the cafe. Um, but uh, yeah, I, I was, um, I, yeah, like I said, I've been very lucky to be involved. I know Richard O'Brien pretty well. I've done, I, you know, I did Chitty Chitty Bang Bang with him for two years. So I got to know and got some some great insight onto the show, which made me love it even more. So it's Yeah, great. well, tell, tell us a little about who Richard is as a person. Well, I, funnily, my connection to him is not through the Rocky Horror Show. As I just said, I'd done the show as a youngster and then I was working in the West End and I got cast in... Um, in the Chitty Chitty Bang Bang, and he was the child catcher playing, you know, the, the creepy guy that comes and kidnaps all the children. And so I went on tour with him to Asia after we were in London. We went to, out to Singapore, and I got to know him during that time really well to a point where we were lunching a couple of days a week together and just hanging out. And I was asking him a lot of advice about, you know, the musical theatre world and writing and all that sort of stuff, which he was always super forthcoming with, um, with that. a really gentle, kind, funny-as-heck guy. Um, I had one experience in the wings where I came off stage and he was in half of his costume, ready to come on in act two. So he had his tight black pants and boots, but he just had a floppy white t-shirt. And if you know Richard and you know what he's, he's got breasts, he's been, you know, developing those for some years deliberately. And he lifted up his t-shirt and said, have you ever been propositioned by a 71 year old transgender before? I said, no. And he goes, well, you have now and flops his boobs out. And to him, that was just, a, you know, his sense of humor, just hysterical. Um, but, you know, I, I talked to him a, a lot about him writing the show and I, I had written a script for a Neil Diamond musical that I was pushing at the time to the, to the Neil Diamond's publishing company. And I said to him, oh, you know, it's, it's a really hard struggle to get the rights to, to Neil's music and it's got to go through so many channels. And Richard turned and said, why the heck would you want to 
write use someone else's music what's the story like is it anything to do with diamond and i said no it's completely it's a story about a, a guy um killing someone in a bare knuckle fight in ireland in the turn of the century he immigrates to new york and lands on his feet and it's his whole come into america was and he said so go find uh, someone to write the music you've got you, you can write lyrics right I said i'm okay because here why would you be asking for someone's permission don't ever do that and he said and that was his biggest advice to me just go do it yourself he said he said i know about seven chords on the guitar and I've written, you know, two or three shows and he's written pop songs and all that sort of stuff. So I thought that was really, really good advice. Yeah. So Richard, yeah, a fantastic guy. And I called, I, I caught up with him over the years. He, he's, he's, he grew up in New Zealand. He moved there when he was like 10 and lived there till he was 20. Um, then came back and obviously you probably know the story he was doing Jesus Christ Superstar. Um, as kind of a featured ensemble or as an apostle and Jim Shaman, Jim Sharman was directing it. They became good buddies, and then in the following years, he pitched to Sharman, and Sharman went, "Let's do it. Let's get this on." And they they took it upstairs, as I was saying, at one of the theaters in London, um, and did it uh, at the the Royal Court upstairs, and it had like hundred people a night, and created this real cult cult following until they finally someone came and said, "Let's make the movie," and the rest is history. And that was that was how their relationship, I believe, got started. And he's still, you know, utilizing it today to, you know. Yeah. Propeller's career. And the movie was called originally um They Came from Denton High. Right, right. And then Shaman went, I don't think that has the same ring as have a listen to the Rocky Horror Picture Show. And he went, Oh, let's do that. And that, that 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 kind of developed from that relationship, I believe. Good, good. Good stuff, Steve. Any uh thing you want to plug? No, um, if you're in Vegas, come and see Jason and I at Battlebots Destructathon. If you like seeing robots getting blown up. Apart from that, um, yeah, thanks for having me, guys. It's always good to to think back about, you know, things that happened 30 years ago and how they're still kind of part of your life today. Yeah, you can you can put it up uh, in between fights at BattleBots. <laughs> yeah. <next> <laughs> so. Steve Judkins, thanks so much. My pleasure. Good to see you. I am here with Steve Van Meter and Destiny Kane. Hi. Hello. Hi. And you guys are from Frankie's Favorite Obsession, which has been a live shadow cast to the Rocky Horror Picture Show in Vegas for 22 years. Yep. Yeah. 22 years. <laughs> I believe today is the official anniversary, right, Steve? The third? Third or fourth, yeah. It's, yeah. It's been a while. But, but <laughs> right thank up. you guys for coming to our uh, 22nd anniversary show this past Saturday. We appreciated having you. Yeah, it was a full house for Steve's retirement show. And uh, how did that compare to, like, most of your other shows? I think the show itself was pretty on par for a, a traditional experience. We did a longer pre-show than we normally would with uh, additional clips and reels and stuff that we show before the movie. And then um, we usually have like one costume contest and then the Virgin Sacrifice. Ooh. So, uh, so that was pretty typical, but we did show a little bit of additional footage. Uh, Steve had a desire to show some really cool stuff on the screen that probably hasn't been on a movie theater screen in a long time and uh, get to see it one last time before he, uh, he departs. And Steve, you were, you founded the company? Kind of co-founded, honestly. Um, there was a, uh, another person at the time, Katie Green, uh, who had, she she had been around for a couple of years before I came in. Um, I started I started attending in 1998, and then um, I was known as Audience Eddie for a year because I I dressed up as Eddie and came. 
And then in 99 uh, was when I actually joined up with the cast that was there. And um, Katie was on that cast at the time. We both weren't really happy with the way that things were going. We put up with it for a while, uh, broke off in July of 2021 and formed FFO over that summer. Um, or 2001, you mean? Yeah. <laughs> Sorry. Oh, man. <laughs> I'm still a little lag from coming back from the show. <laughs> well, we saw the bike you were riding. It must have been tough to get back to Tucson on that thing. So, um, yeah. Destiny, how long have you been with the company? So I joined Frankie's Favorite Obsession July of 2012 because I was anxiously counting the weeks and months until I turned 18. I started seeing them perform uh, when I was about 16 and a half. Uh, they actually were not the first cast that I saw perform. I saw a different cast here in Las Vegas uh, when I was about 16. And that was a very different experience uh, than what I uh, came to see at Frankie's Favorite Obsession. And I fell in love when I uh, first went and got to see it in the movie theater. A very different setup than some of the other experiences that I've had since then as well. So uh, a little bit more of that traditional experience being in a theater, in a movie seat with the big, big screen and a, and a full cast uh, is definitely something special. Yeah. When, when you say like these other types of experiences, can you kind of describe one for us? Uh, so my first time seeing the Rocky Horror Picture Show with a live cast was in a very small theater here in Las Vegas that was actually in the back of a pornography shop. And uh, it was a little place called the Onyx. Yeah. And I was 16. And since I was underage, you had to be accompanied by a parent. And so my dad took me and my best friend to see this cast perform. And it was a a theater with a tiny little projector screen and probably only fit like maybe 35, 40 people. And being 16 and having to walk through the beginning entrance of the store, which was a pornography shop to get to the theater, uh, was very uh, X-rated X and not really something that I would recommend <laughs> to most people. But I too, like David, have uh, parents who love to expose their children to inappropriate things. So <laughs> I can relate to that and uh it was a smaller production smaller audience a little bit more intimate um and not uh quite as high quality as uh as what we put out with frankie's steve how many times have you seen this film oh um, <laughs> that's kind of a running joke at the show i mean i i just retired but yeah uh they always give me crap for this because uh we always ask start out like who, who's seen it at least 200 times sit down and it's always me and the other cast leader val who uh val started before i did i i honestly stopped counting back in about 05 when i had seen it 500 times um and i had started seeing it in 98 so in seven years you had seen it 500 times i had yeah i well i kind of went religiously to our show and then uh just different shows around the country and yeah yeah it was crazy but yeah <laughs> what is it and this is for both of you that makes someone obsessed with this film and this experience i can uh say for me i growing up was always a theater kid i was obsessed with theater i loved performing arts um i wasn't really your typical like 
body type for what it took to be a professional performer. And when I first started going to Rocky Horror, one of the things that I noticed, you know, when you're an adolescent, you're a teenager, you really want that like confidence boost of being seen as someone who can be on stage and people want you there. And I love that um, the community is really what sucked me in to the Rocky Horror experience because so many people who get involved in Rocky Horror love theater, love performing, and they love this like weird movie that has a very strange plot and it's a musical and like we all get together and we get to have an amazingly fun, unique experience. And not only is it unique to each show, but it's also carrying on this tradition that's been going on for, man, we're coming up on 50 years that people have have been seeing this in theaters. It's uh, probably going to be one of the longest running movies in a theater i think it is the longest running theatrical release yeah, ever. I, yeah. I, um and so for me it was mostly the people it was getting involved with the people and getting a place to have that like itch to scratch the performance itch the theater itch that was accepting and uh adoring it was it, that was what sucked me in <laughs> um for me the first time that i actually saw rocky horror was uh i was 10 years old uh, in 1993 and I went to turn on the Simpsons one Sunday night and all of a sudden it was the Rocky Horror Picture Show instead and I was like what is this and um, I had never heard of it before and it uh, they had spliced it, it was it turns out it was the first um, US broadcast premiere uh, and they had spliced in filmed footage of live casts doing it um, into the movie so i'd be watching the movie and all of a sudden it cut to people in an audience and I was like, what is going on and they were they were acting it out and but i i immediately fell in love with it um just a few months later i got some christmas money uh wound up buying it uh on vhs from the warehouse that should tell you how old i am and just watched it like religiously every day when i came home from school for years in 94 and 95 vh1 started showing it uh pretty regularly mtv sometimes showed it they showed all the fan interaction and i just was like okay this is something that i would love to do um and i like that it was aside from i was never a theater kid i i okay that's a little bit of a lie i did tech theater uh for two years in high school and but I never wanted to get on the stage and act, especially not anywhere that my my parents could see it or my family. Um, so then discovering Rocky, it was kind of like, oh, OK, I have a chance to, to act and do stuff without like feeling embarrassed or feeling like self-conscious in front of my family. But as far as uh, actually going to see it, I was 16 first time that my parents would allow me to see it was in a real movie theater, which turns out is the same theater that we're performing in now 25 years later. But when I finally got to see it in Halloween of 98, it was just, you know, Sal, Sal Piero said it best, who was the um, who was the Rocky Horror Fan Club president. He recently passed away, so rest in peace, Sal. He said he felt that electricity in the audience and saw the lips on the screen and everything just, it, it just like came alive. The whole room came alive and that's how it was for me. I think the audience participation is really the addicting portion of being not no matter where you're at in the theater, you're part of the show. And I think that that's what's so unique about the experience. When you guys started as audience members before you were performing, how 
long until you were comfortable yelling out suggestions or questions or you know anything towards the screen because you're you got some vultures in there who know you know obviously every line and what they're going to yell at all times that was me within about five minutes my first show uh (laughs) i was i was one of the rocky geeks who like uh, i was a video virgin for a few years that's what we call it until you've seen it in an actual movie theater um i well god i don't know what the term was streaming virgin now um uh yeah i had only seen it at home at, but but back in 1983 there was this uh recording produced um the rocky horror audience participation album and i i had that on cd and eventually vinyl and just listened to that religiously and learned all the callbacks from there and then when i got into the theater i i tried some at first to see because they're very i mean this was like a 15 year gap in between when that was recorded and when I went and it was there were some regional lines in there there's some very dated stuff in there so it's it was interesting seeing how how things had come along and changed and the honest participation is constantly changing and updating with the times the news just pop culture um I always love that part of it do either of you have a best costume that you remember oh uh, we had a show recently where literally like eight people all showed up in identical lab coat versions of Frankenfurter, and it was like a Frankenfurter mob, and they all had these perfect green surgical gowns and matching makeup. Like they were like full lab Frank, and it was so impressive to see like eight of them all together in a group. Uh, that was pretty exciting. What is one of your other favorite movies? Just so we kind of just get a gauge. Yeah, name some of your favorites. Are you like no? I never watched I'll another do, movie. Um, <laughs> yeah, I'll go ahead. Uh, I I actually love Shock Treatment, which doesn't get talked about enough. Um, oh, I see you smiling. Okay, cool. Um, Shock Treatment is basically the. It's not a direct sequel to Rock right. Horror. It is a. Uh, it's kind of a spinoff. Uh, the continuing adventures of Brad and Janet. Yeah, it's like thing. in the same universe without without the actors, right? Yeah. Yeah. Um, so I love that. I love weird cult musicals. Uh, Hedwig and the Angry Inch, uh, Listomania, uh, which I know that you guys just recently did an episode. We did. But, uh, I love horror movies. Halloween. John Carpenter's Halloween is my favorite movie. Um, yeah, I wasn't going to let you get away without saying Halloween. <laughs> yeah. Phantasm, Children of the Corn, The Wicker Man, the original Wicker Man, not, not the shitty remake. Destiny, any favorites? Any surprises? Like, like if you threw like Billy Elliot out or something like that. that no, that, I mean, that. to be honest, I'm actually not really much of a, a big like movie person. I, I like television shows and series. I'm more into the long con. And so um, I like series mostly. Um, I watch a lot of like series that are based on books like Outlander is one of my favorite series. Um, I love all musicals, though. Uh, we, we have an appreciation for like Mamma Mia. I also really love Shock Treatment. I think in a lot of ways, Shock Treatment is almost more enjoyable than Rocky Horror, uh, <laughs> which is kind of a controversial opinion to have. Uh, it's just uh, amazing uh how much larger the cast is and like watching it visually um i don't think there are as many songs in that movie that stick with people the way that the songs in rocky horror do but i i definitely um, am very entertained by that movie i am actually not a horror movie fan at all i am a weenie capital w weenie and uh he got me good 
when we were watching Halloween because he has a very, very screen accurate costume and including that William Shatner mask. And the end of the movie, spoilers. Um, no spoilers. We can't do it. We haven't covered it on this uh, podcast, so <laughs> oh, we can't spoil well, it. Well, anyway, we get to the end of the movie. 75 you think, now. That I'm <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> you think one thing happens, and it's not actually happened yet, and he pops up right next to me with an actual Michael Myers mask, and I kicked him in the face. I was ready yeah. for that. So that was fun times, huh? Last question. Do you guys have quote-unquote normal jobs or are you able to just do this full-time well you just retired steve so i guess like how much was this just for fun or were you able to make a legit income doing this no you i no one unless you're unless you're doing the professional stage show uh right there's no way that you're gonna make money doing this the most money that i ever made was we did a show in 2008 for uh unlv and since I was one of the organizers along with the student union there, they I got a $500 paycheck. That's the most I've ever made <laughs> ever. And that includes, I, um, I'm i actually the Eddie, I don't know if, you're, if anyone even watches Blu-ray anymore, I still do. Um, there's a picture in picture feature on the Blu-ray and um, I'm, I actually played Eddie on that. And Which anniversary Blu-ray was that? Which the, year? The, the 35th anniversary funny enough that's all that's available on blu-ray they just keep repressing it and slapping a new number or new packaging on it but it's still the same disc from 2010 repressing is a good word for rocky horror different form though um uh so i guess rocky horror is is really just a labor of love uh nobody really does it because they're gonna make any money on it um uh, my day job is that i'm actually a licensed veterinary technician but i knew that i always wanted to be involved in theater and i never wanted to make it a job because there's something about uh really loving something that when you attach money to it it makes it so much less enjoyable and uh our current uh structure for um frankie's favorite obsession is we are actually irs official stamped 501c3 we are a, a a public charity this is the first year that we've actually been uh recognized as a 501c3 uh business uh we're a a cooperative corporation technically cool do you guys have anything else you want to plug you want to give out the info on where people could find you or the company. Our uh, website is rhpsvegas.com. Um, we are Frankie's Favorite Obsession on Facebook, um, Instagram. We also have a Snapchat, a few other little obscure things, but most of our traffic is on is on Facebook and our website. Um, I do want to plug that since um, if you are local to Las Vegas or Henderson, Boulder City, and the surrounding areas, we are a volunteer cast. So anybody who might be interested in participating with us as part of Frankie's Favorite Obsession, definitely get involved. Go to our website, rhpsvegas.com, and send us an application. Uh, you'll definitely be hearing from me. We need all aspects we need tech people we need costume people um, we're always looking for people who want to join in on the fun anytime anywhere especially halloween's coming up Total las vegas orange. 100 degrees means it's basically halloween <laughs> i love halloween but even for me that's a bit early right now but <laughs> we're already uh, in for halloween so you get it on the level it's a really fun uh experience i would recommend people go check out 
Frankie's favorite obsession. Thank you guys. Thanks, Destiny. Thanks, Steve. Enjoy riding your motorbike off into the golden years. Thank you. And a special thanks to Tropicana Cinemas, our lovely yes. hosts. We'll be back talking about the legacy of the Rocky Horror Picture Show. Welcome back to Awesome Movie Year. In this episode of our season on the films of 1975, we are talking about cult classic, the Rocky Horror Picture Show. And we just heard a lot kind of related to the cult classicness of it, I think, which is the, obviously the key legacy is all of this performance around the Rocky Horror Picture Show. Yeah, it's a full community and uh, everyone is uh, happy. You wouldn't be, but everyone else was happy. And, you know, that, that it's really an event and it's been an event for almost 50 years now. And as we said, the longest running theatrically playing film ever. So it is um, I, actually I remember, Josh, in college, I took a um, cultural anthropology class and like the final was to go out and experience like some type of cultural event and break it down like write it up as an anthropological kind of thesis if you will I and will. this would be a this was this would be a perfect one to go to yeah as a cultural anthropologist what did you what, which what, which we all are yes we are that's why people <laughs> yeah. listen for the cultural anthropology yeah. here on awesome movie year <laughs> Yeah, but but you're you're right. It is it is. I'm sure there's academic studies of of Rocky Horror as a phenomenon and performances and shadow casts and the whole idea of a shadow cast, which I don't think existed. There were other midnight movies. I mean, that was kind of what inspired the beginning of this being shown at midnight. But the idea of performers reenacting the movie in front of the movie, I don't think was a thing anywhere else. What a breakthrough year. This Jaws, just this kind of feeling of immersion in cinema. Yeah, yeah. Very different kinds of immersion, but yeah, both of them, both of them are that way. And there's certainly like Jaws is a is a midnight movie kind of thing as well, where you go and and you know experience that with an audience. Yeah. And some of us would argue the shark's not the bad guy. <laughs> yes. <laughs> some of us would argue that. Um so because this became such an unexpected phenomenon, of course, there was an effort to capitalize on that with a sequel in 1980. A kind of sequel. Right. Initially, it was conceived more as a, as a real sequel, but Tim Curry did not want to return as Frank Furter or at all, and uh, neither Barry Bostwick nor Susan Sarandon were available to return as Brad and Janet. So instead, there is this sequel from 1981 called Shock Treatment, which, again, was directed by Jim Sharman, who directed the uh, original film as well as the original stage production and written by Richard O'Brien with songs by Richard O'Brien. And it does feature Brad and Janet, although they're played by different actors. Cliff DeYoung plays Brad and Jessica Harper plays Janet. And a bunch of the performers who had come from the stage show and were in Rocky Horror, the film, are in shock treatment in different roles. Richard O'Brien, Patricia Quinn, Little Nell, Charles Gray, all of them are in it, but playing different parts. And I actually watched this film and it has its own kind of lesser cult following, but this was not one that I really had fun with. It, it's even more disjointed. There were a lot of like compromises production wise that make it seem like they don't really have a handle on what they're trying to do with it. It's not a sci-fi B-movie parody like Rocky Horror is. And it's it's sort of satirizing 
like suburban conformity. And it, it, it has a bit of a forward, you know, prescience about the rise of reality TV. And Janet becomes this sort of like almost a reality TV star. And Brad is in a mental institution. It's got a lot of weird stuff that doesn't come together. And, and the worst thing, I think, is just the songs are not that good. That's what I was wondering. How does the hard rock compare to the hard rock of this one? Yeah. And it, it did. Uh, it got a kind of a negative response, including from a lot of Rocky Horror super fans when it came out. Eventually, it's been appreciated a bit more and was eventually adapted itself into a stage production in 2015, but not nearly at the level of the original. Yeah. As you heard in our interview, Destiny loves shock treatment, Josh. But you're talking about Richard O'Brien, man. This guy has made his, uh, he was Kevin Smith before Kevin Smith. This guy has continued with his career in the Rocky Horror world uh, from then until now. He's still making Rocky Horror type content, isn't he? Yeah. I mean, I think a lot of these people have benefited, you know, it's just like any of these cult movies or genre movies where between conventions and appearances and whatever, just they can kind of ride that even if their careers aren't as high profile as some of the other people in this film. But yeah, Richard O'Brien has written a bunch of other musicals as well that are not as well known, but he continues to do that and definitely continues to be sort of a spokesperson for Rocky Horror, I guess you could say. Right. And he's written many other would-be sequels or a few other would-be sequels to this one. Yeah. There were efforts uh, over time to try to get that going. Obviously, it's at this point, it's not really going to happen. A lot of these, uh, you know, the actors are definitely past the point where they could be starring in a Rocky Horror sequel. Um, there was a remake as well in 2016 that was made for TV on Fox after the success of, as Jason referenced, the Rocky Horror episode of Glee. Fox decided to do a full on remake of the film. It had Laverne Cox as Frank Furter and Tim Curry played the criminologist, the narrator. And I actually was going to maybe try to watch this, although it got horrible reviews and um, not really, I don't think, beloved amongst the Rocky Horror fans, but I didn't get a chance to see it. Mm, I didn't see it either there, Josh. It seems like that was probably the best. But, uh, you know, the fact that that was a thing, um, you know, that that there was enough interest that, you know, Fox TV would want to remake this movie. It feels like the kind of thing, though, that you can't really remake, right? It, it's, it captured a certain feeling and a certain vibe at a certain moment. Well, you'll have to tell that to Richard O'Brien between shock treatment, Rocky Horror shows his heels. Revenge of the Old Queen and Rocky Horror, the second coming. He's really trying to make it happen. He is. I mean, he's those are sequels, at least. It's not like he's trying to just do a, a remake yeah. of Rocky Horror. Right. So, Josh, we should talk about those iconic lips up front, too. Please tell me about the lips. There's lips up front. And then um, singing. People are like, yay, lips. I thought cool. you had some sort of uh, point to make about the lips. Well, no, it just they've become iconic over time. It's a very intriguing intro to the film. It is. It is indeed. And singing the science fiction double feature, which is another well-known song from, from this film and mentioning a lot of the B-movies that influenced right. and the, the people like George Powell, for example, who we talked about in our War of the Worlds episode in our 1953 season, you know, the things like that that were that were influential on Rocky Horror. Yeah, Josh, uh, Tim Curry, uh, not doing too well health-wise, which is a bummer, but do you have any other, I mean, I'd say Clue is probably the one that people love from him besides this? Yeah, I've actually never seen Clue, but you're right that people do love that. My personal favorite, I always remember Tim Curry as Pennywise the Clown from the, yeah, the 1990s. Yeah, the TV miniseries of It, which 
I actually think it's pretty good, but it's uneven. And by far, Tim Curry is the best thing about it. I mean, that that his version of Pennywise is 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 highly acclaimed, but really should to me be even more iconic as far as horror movie villains go or horror movie heroes from Jason's perspective, perhaps. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> fair enough. He's also probably the best thing in Muppets Treasure Island, which was not a good Muppets movie. Yeah. And that's coming from a, a hardcore Muppet fan. there. That's right. Shout out to Congo, by the way. <laughs> there you go. Susan Sarandon won a uh, Best Actress Academy Award, which she's been nominated five different times, Josh. She won it for uh, Dead Man Walking. Of course, uh, movies like Thelma and Louise, Bull Durham, The Witches of Eastwick, just tons of just legendary films. Yeah, she's been in so many movies. I mean, she's a huge, uh, clearly, you know, the biggest star of anybody who's in this movie. And uh, she's going to be the villain in Blue Beetle, the new DC superhero movie. So still doing hmm. all sorts of. That's cool. She's also in the new Tyler Perry movie, Six Triple Eight, which sounds terrible because it's about um, it's like one of these like when everyone went off to war, these are the people who stayed home and saved the day. Right. But it's about a group of women who like the whole plot is like all the men are at war and the post office is behind. So they sort mail and they're like, they delivered 17 million pieces of mail. And I'm like, why is this a movie? This is, this is not, you know, hidden figures. They, they're not putting people on rockets here. I feel like if anyone can make mail sorting interesting, it's Susan <laughs> yeah. Sarandon, you know, she's oh, that I, good. I, do you think uh, Medea will show up? I sure film? hope so. No, but I mean, that, that shows you the versatility, right? She's in a Tyler Perry movie. She's in a superhero movie. And I'm sure she has like five other things in the works. Wasn't she dating that dude who like uh, was popularizing ping pong clubs yeah. across America? Yeah, she dated That's... the ping pong dude uh, yeah. briefly. More notably was a long-term partner with Tim Robbins. Who? Yeah, Tim Robbins is great. But can he play ping pong? Ping pong, yeah. ping pong guy. So true. So true. Uh, Barry Bostwick, of course, has also been successful, not on that same level, but he's a major character actor. There's a lot of TV. You know, I think Spin City is probably the TV show that he's well known for. Was also a big stage actor, won a Tony in 1977 for a play called The Robber Bridegroom, which I'm not familiar with. And uh, the thing, sadly, that I think I remember Barry Bostwick for most besides Rocky Horror is FDR American Badass. <laughs> I don't know what that is, but I mean, I'm guessing, yeah, he played some type of gangster version of uh, Franklin Delano Roosevelt. Pretty much. Yeah, it's more it's more like a fighting off supernatural creatures version of Franklin Delano Ooh. Roosevelt. But I saw that at a film festival here in Las Vegas, and it's very bad, but memorable. I liked him as the mayor on Spin City. Richard O'Brien did have uh some other success there, Josh, in movies like Ever After. He's a uh, dark city and he's a voice actor on Phineas and Herb. That's a very popular show. Yeah. Thanks, Josh. Yeah. So uh, Jim Sharman, the director, basically Rocky Horror movie wise is pretty much the only thing that he's known for. He only directed three more movies after this, including Shock Treatment. And that was the final movie he directed in 1981. He's mainly a very prolific theater director in Australia where he's from and very successful in that realm, but didn't, didn't use Rocky horror as a springboard to a long film career. And we mentioned Peter Sashishki, the director of photography in our episode on this season, where he was also the director of photography for Listomania. Wow. But um, yeah, so he had quite a 75 there, Josh. Uh, he's done a ton of work with our friend, David Cronenberg, 
shout out to the crones. Give us a yell. Yeah, Listomania and Rocky Horror, two of the craziest movies of the year. That's amazing. Yeah, that's like you might need to take some time off just to get your mind right after. Yeah, exactly. I can feel I feel like Listomania could have this. I can imagine an audience participation screening of Listomania and lines being shouted and things being thrown, giant penises of some kind maybe being thrown oh, around yeah. at a Listomania screening. You're getting Dave very worked up. <laughs> yeah, <though>. Dave is <laughs> going to put this on, I think. I really, really want to. So, uh, anything else you want to mention on the legacy of this film, Jason? Sue Blaine, the uh, costume designer, has claimed that these costumes directly affected punk rock fashion. I believe it. I believe it. I mean, it's got that glam, you know, the combination of the glam rock stuff and the sci-fi stuff and the queer underground. It's a unique style that you can see people have co-opted. Josh, we didn't even mention Meatloaf, who we talked about on our uh, Fight Club episode. What is it that he won't do for love? That. Mm-hmm. Yeah, Meatloaf is great. I mean, it's it's a testament to how crazy this movie is that Meatloaf is like way down the list of, of notable sort of appearances in this film. And, you know, he plays Eddie and he has his one big song. And then, as I said, he gets murdered and they eat him. Well, do you think that when he was riding his bike, maybe Frankenfooter was behind him, but he didn't realize that objects in his rearview mirror may appear closer than they were. Yeah, that might be why he was able to get murdered because he did not take a look. He didn't look realize how close he was. Yeah, yeah that's, that's something to look was. into. Yeah. All right. That's the Rocky Horror Picture Show. And that it took the words right out of my mouth. That is this episode of Awesome Movie Year. You can perform in our shadow cast online and on social media. Yeah, we're at Awesome Movie Year. You're going to do that stuff or not? <laughs> oh, okay, sure. Awesomemovieer.com, Awesome Movie Year on Facebook and Instagram, Awesome Movie Pod on Twitter. I'm Jason Harris Comedy or Jay Harris Comedy on the socials. Eat this comedy. That's a thing. And of course, find me at Go for Jason on Letterboxd, where I'm ripping movies like this with two stars, while Dave is giving anything that is intellectual property a sequel 71 stars this year. <laughs> maybe, uh, maybe if there was a big budget rocky horror with uh, explosions or something yeah rocky horror in the dial of destiny dave would be like oh i love this hey josh liked that movie too i did that was a fun one uh you can find <laughs> me at josh bell hates everything.com some old stuff there at josh bell hates everything on facebook and at signal bleed on twitter while that is still existing maybe and at signal bleed on letterboxd and listen to our producer, David Rosen's awesome podcast, Piecing It Together. Check out Piecing It Together wherever you listen to podcasts. Follow us on social media at PiecingPod. And join our Facebook group, Popcorn and Puzzle Pieces, where I'm sure there's lots of Rocky Horror fans. Indeed. Jason, what do we have in our next episode? Josh, we leave it up to the audience. And we gave them the topic of sexploitation, which blew their mind. Uh, they had multiple choices to choose from, Josh. And that's what you do at multiple choices. You choose choice from those choices. They chose the Switchblade Sisters. So tune in next time for Switchblade Sisters. And thanks for listening to Awesome Movie Year. Thank you for listening to Awesome Movie Year. Make sure to follow Awesome Movie Year on Facebook, at Awesome Movie Pod on Twitter, and at Awesome Movie Year on Instagram. And if you like the show, review us and rate us with five stars on Apple Podcasts.
an All Points West production, produced by David Rosen in Las Vegas.